That was Soul Searching Time by The Tramps from 1976. And um, it stimulates me to uh, entitle this podcast Soul Searching Time because I'm searching my soul, or in a way I guess I'm asking others to search theirs as well, in relationship to the most recent podcast I gave called Surprise, Surprise, um, as a response to which I've received very, very strong feedback, very strong feedback, some negative from persons who felt sort of um, invoked or criticized uh, by um, making exceptions to otherwise broad um, principle, passionate um, statements, and yet somehow um, living gleichzeitig at the same time with um, radical and um, uh, undeniable exceptions, and also some very strong and passionately felt agreement. One um, notice in particular from a regular listener to the podcast is so um, uh, convinced that reformed uh, Christians are particularly guilty of... um, of compartmentalization when it comes to grace, that he wrote me a passionate letter at age 62 um, describing his own experience and why he's come to believe that the Reformed Christian uh, hierarchy and leadership has completely missed the boat for reasons of power and control, so he wants to say, uh, as opposed to um, really following through in practical and specific case terms with grace. Now, I uh, was um, very struck by his... um, mature um, distillation of his experience. But I will say this. What happened with Tullian is emblematic of something very important. Regardless of what you may think about Tullian's theology or Tullian's this or Tullian's that, what happened with Tullian, by which almost all of his old friends, many of whom came from reformed circles and PCA circles, just dropped him, uh, as we say, like a hot coal, is... um, has to be dealt with. There has to be some kind of soul-searching. What is it about a certain form of Christianity, at least in his context, that on the one hand speaks with um, 100% focus on the radical grace of God to sinners and fallen people, both uh, victims and uh, culprits, to use the German expression. Um, What... um, what is going on with the way that certain kinds of sin uh, are exempted uh, from the reach of grace in practice? And uh, people that were at one point uh, very much strongly supported and co-partisans um, in great causes to lift up the doctrine of justification by faith alone become pariahs because of a particular sin. And this is absolutely not true to the Spirit of Christ. This is simply absolutely contrary to the Spirit of Christ. And it raises a question. I remember when one particular presbytery came out swinging against Italian, and I, I, my immediate thought was, well, how, how can they really be really be Christians? I mean, since when does the good shepherd of the 70 times 7, um, what is going on with this? It, it, it almost, uh, I sort of detached from it for a moment, and rather than get all upset, I said, what actually causes this? Why, why would people who protest so much, um, many of my colleagues in the Gospel Coalition, 
um, what what is it that would cause uh, such a, a complete um, scapegoating or uh, exemption uh, of one particular individual or another? And then I brought in the question that with liberal people, that is in the liberal denominations, the uh, the um, invocation of radical hospitality and radical welcome and radical inclusion, which sounds great and is true of the gospel. The gospel is a is a message of radical inclusion and radical hospitality and radical welcome, especially to those who are in trouble, the sufferers and those in pain. And yet, how come that those very people exempt uh, large groups? I mean, it is a little ironic that you know I won't get into pro life issues, but I haven't heard a single major figure in the liberal denominations um, sort of chime in in regard to the current um, controversy about uh, third trimester abortions and even what appears to be infanticide from the governor of uh, one of the states where many of us live. Um, How can, um, you know, who are the most marginalized of all? It would be babies in the womb. I mean, is anyone more... um, powerless than a child in the womb, no matter what the situation. And since when is life in Christian religion not an end in itself? What And, and since when do, do we want to say that a human being has the power to give or take life uh, as opposed to God? It's certainly in the law. And um, you, you, uh, you, so we're, we're so inclusive about this group or that group and particular obvious ones that people are concerned about, rightfully so, but we exempt, you know, millions of unborn without batting an eye. It, it's as if there's a sort of no um, communication. What is that bridge they discovered at the Super Bowl? They discovered that Atlanta had had created a large bridge between the stadium and a parking lot and uh, spent $23 million on this bridge and then it was declared, a, you know, um, for security reasons, it was, you can't use it. Well, I mean, um, where's the bridge between radical welcome and uh, the, 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 the babies currently in the womb or uh, in my case, with traditional uh, theologically traditional Christians in relationship to one or two particular issues who are absolutely and completely um, thumbs, thumb at the nose, you know, uh, as far as the majority is concerned. And that's not a, you know, that I'm not, not making that up. That's not a projection. I, I was commenting to somebody, well, you know, tell, t- talk about radical welcome to the 800 clergy in a, my own denomination who have uh, who've left since 2002. I mean, yes, if they 800, maybe let's say 200 would have left anyway, or 200 were difficult already, and 200 on the verge of some kind of angry reaction, but not 800, I mean, or eight, no, 900. Uh, 600 of those 800 were sincere and good, solid pastoral clergy who were doing a basically good job and some an excellent job and felt profoundly not part of a program of radical inclusion and radical hospitality. Now, the question is not so much, I mean, this could go left or right, right or left. Right now, it goes from left to right, but we could be in another world where it was the other way around. I fully understand that, and I'm not arguing for an ideology. Uh, I was trying to talk to wonderful uh, Sarah the other day, and, you know, the gospel is not right-wing or it's not left-wing. It's not um, conservative or it's not liberal. It's radical. It it, uh, it it is beyond uh, ideology. But one thing we know about the gospel is it is a radical embrace of those people whom the world will not 
um, stomach. And that includes, in this particular world, a certain kind of traditional Christian, of whom I guess I am basically one, I admit that, um, or in the case of <coughs> of Tullian, someone who finds himself or has acted out in a particular way and is somehow cut off from all mercy. Mercy, the God of mercy. It's really pathetic, but how did, what, is the, what do we need to do here? I mean, we, you tell me what what is the answer? How how could we possibly bring a message of, of of grace to actual cases? Remember, I read that passage from Mark Rutherford uh, in the Mockingbird thing that this Draper used to come to a, the Sunday evening prayer meeting in 1830 in uh, in Bedford, and uh, it was an evangelical dissenting congregation, i.e., a Baptist chapel, and uh, he would um, he would bemoan the fact in front of the young people what a sinner he was and how he had putrefying sores of sinful um, behavior and sinful human nature all up and down his body and in his own deepest place, and. And yet the writer Riley says, had uh, Holderness, the draper, actually ever been um, specifically seen to do or been called up on a particular sin, uh, that is a specific infraction, he would have been immediately suspended or expelled. I mean, with all the talk, and yet had there actually been a particular, had he actually done a bad thing, a real sin um, that was not abstract, he would have been immediately suspended or expelled. Read that chapter. I think it's page 19 in Mark Rutherford's autobiography by William Hale White, but who wouldn't say, well, where's the grace in that? I mean, it sort of makes you not really almost not believe there's any church. I mean, it really does. It, it's not just a low ecclesiology. It's sort of a, you know, ecclesiology with a line drawn thrown it. You know, no ecclesiology here. You know, I don't want to have any ecclesiology because it always seems to produce, whether it's on the left and it has no room for conservatives and really sort of de facto kicks them out. And that's true. That's that, that's already happened. We're not those eight hundred people I mentioned earlier. They're, they're not about to. They're, they're not on the verge. It's already happened. But uh, on the conservative side, I mean, uh, we see it all the time in conservative churches. When you take a strong line on grace, everybody says it's great until something specific requires it, and then the place recoils and uh, it just goes. Um, there used to be words for it. Melts down and uh, out you go. And that is uh, really. Um, very disappointing, and I would say it's really uh, disillusioning. So my question again to you, soul-searching time, how does it happen? Well, the only way it happens is when you yourself have been the recipient of grace at a time of deep loss or deep pain or deep sinfulness or deep um, guilt, and you have actually been forgiven, not uh, um, putatively forgiven, but actively been forgiven and restored. Uh, not, um, you know, I forgive you provided that you, you know, I, I forgive you on condition that you, but in the very most greatest extremity, it's not just talk, the fierce love of God, but when the quote, fierce love of God actually is fierce enough to break through all the pariah factors that cover you, whether you're on the left or the right or the middle, and says, I want you. I want you. I uh, I still am with you. I am the God who, despite all your iniquity, to quote what Psalm 106, 108. What I thought I think it's 106, isn't it? We were looking at it this morning, Mary and I. Um, many times you fell. Many times I fell, but nevertheless, I still was willing to forgive you. My loving kindness was for you when you called out to me. And that is something that uh, I might add that the church that I go to often, uh, the New Destiny uh, Christian Center, where Pastor Paula White and her team are preaching, th that is actually um, 
practice there. I mean, they, they really do receive sinners. They, they receive sinners. They don't just talk about it. They actually do it. They, they, they don't just make a sort of a, a virtue signaling of receiving sinners. They actually receive sinners. And um, I, I've seen it. I, I mean, I'm, I know it. I watch it. And I know the people involved in some cases. And it is exactly what the Christian church has always had as its greatest ace in the whole. And so um, when you are uh, treated that way, at the end of your uh, moral slash um, ethical slash even hopes and dreams, uh, your youthful hopes and dreams, when you are truly uh, have, have lost purchase on all the things that you were thinking you were doing and are really splat on the ground and someone comes to you and finds you, it is the greatest thing in the world. And it, uh, it makes all the difference. And from that place, you can, in fact, be specifically the person that makes room for someone who has done the bad thing or a bad thing. And it will not be something something that you have to sort of talk about a parade around, it will happen. Let me give you two examples, then I'm finished. Um, uh, one example is from the conclusion of the Hollywood 1935, I think, or six version of The Last Days of Pompeii, which is different from Edgar, uh, Edward, uh, from Bulwer Lytton's novel. But at the end, the Stuart Granger character, no, it's not Stuart Granger, it's somebody else, but a famous actor of that period, um, it, it has missed his opportunity time and time and time and time and time again to be a Christian and he's just a mess. He's a complete mess and he's really finally done something really wonderful in saving some victims of the earthquake of Mount Vesuvius and whenever it was 60, 69 was it or something like that. He, um, he, he, he he's, he's dying and he's, his son is alright and his son, the, his future daughter-in-law who would have been is uh, saved and they're leaving and Pompeii is destroyed and he's, he's dying under a pillar that's fallen on him and Jesus Christ approaches him. It's a supernatural double, you know, a double focus thing. And it is the most extraordinary thing. Uh, he finds uh, Christ ready to save at the end, despite all. And it is absolutely powerful. And the other illustration is from a novel called We the Accused that was made into an absolutely brilliant BBC um, series long, long time ago. And um, a uh, man, uh, a very uptight fellow, um, English middle class fellow, um, nice guy, played by the actor Ian Holm, falls in love with someone who is not his wife. He has a horrible wife, just an awful wife. But nevertheless, he falls in love with someone who's not in uh, his wife and they have an affair. And we're talking about early Edwardian England and it's a no, no. And finally, he conceives of the idea of poisoning his actual wife so he can marry the young woman who's a sweetheart and not quite knowing what she's doing either. And this man uh, poisons his wife and she is murdered by him. And he's finally... <coughs> um, caught and uh, sentenced to death and it's a really it's a picture of how you how desperate you can become when you make a certain number of moves in a certain direction it's very easy to make another move and make another move and all of a sudden you've done something appalling and he's sentenced to be hanged and he is hanged but um his uh, the third party the young lady who was not party to the murder the woman he did it for uh who's just a wrecked or a completely wrecked human being at this point and she will have to take an assumed name and move to Canada or something or New Zealand uh, uh, the shame of the trial. She was the other woman, but she did not 
not have anything to do with the murder, and she didn't quite realize that he was married. Or she, she's she's innocent, as it were, although she did fall in love with this married man and was very sincere about it. And she's a, the complete end of her pariah rope. And a Church of England clergyman finds out about it and comes to her. And he has a he's a man who's developed a particular ministry to the wives or husbands of executed capital offenses. And he finds her and he goes after her in the most powerful manner. And um, invites her to come live with him and his wife and their children in the rectory where he lives. And he truly reaches out to this woman who is at this point a social outcast of the highest of of, uh, negativity in English society. And he makes a home for her. And on the day of her uh, lover's, uh, her hoped-for husband's uh, execution, he stays with her and prays with her as uh, she knows the time has come for the execution. And he is truly the presence of Christ to this pariah of a woman. And he exemplifies it. And who would have thought that in this novel from the 1930s or so called We the Accused, that such a powerful picture of Christian grace would have come? And I'm sure the clergyman had his congregation known whom he was sheltering, he and his wife sheltering in the rectory would have been, uh, he would have uh, probably lost his job. That is the gospel. Thank you so much for listening. And let's conclude by a song that really has nothing to do with this, but has a line in it about a a woman is really trying to win a man. It's not the message here, but it's a message that ties into others in which she is trying to love him on the outside so that he will, he will feel it on the inside. And this is one of the fifth dimension's most moving and lyrical ballads um, called uh, If I Could Reach You. Thank you very much. God bless. Said a word about tomorrow.